0: Hello. This is the Fightback Podcast, hosted by exercise scientist Georgia Berry. Here you'll find a series of honest conversations about martial arts and mental health. My guests and I explore the statement that every martial artist has heard. Martial arts saved me. How and why do combat sports save people? Listen to find out. hello. Hello, hello. Before you jump into this incredible episode with Holly, I want to mention to you a new program that I have launching next week. It's called Mindful Muscles. It is a trauma-informed strength training group program run online. This is a program that I had a lot of requests to run. I know a lot of women are wondering how they can work on their strength when they feel like their body is betraying them. It's a source of pain and discomfort. This program I'm so proud of. I think it works really, really well, and I cannot wait to launch it. I only have a few places left, but as a loyal listener of this show, I want to mention it to you. Secure a place. If you really want to come along, make sure you click the link in the description description, the show notes, whatever you call them, um, and get onto the waiting list to be a part of that group. And I'll be in touch to talk to you about next steps and see if you're someone who is appropriate for the program. In the meantime, have a listen to this amazing episode with Holly. Holly, welcome to the Fight Back podcast, everyone. I am here with Holly baker Boljevac. She is a counsellor and a coach with 36 years' experience as a martial artist. Holly, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Georgia. I'm so happy to be here.
0: I'm so excited to dig into the incredibly rich and diverse experience that you have had throughout your life, which you really almost seem like someone who was made to be on this show with all the different things that we're going to dig into today. Um, Let's provide an overview, actually, for everyone. Today, we're going to talk about your experience starting martial arts when you were three. We're going to talk about having martial arts as a guiding thing throughout your life. We're going to talk about your work as a counsellor, what you've come to know about the impact of domestic violence on your clients. We're going to talk about Motion Ninja Academy, which is the school that you've developed teaching martial arts to adults and children and some of the, I think, different Perspectives that you've got energetically from the counseling, from the lifelong martial arts, in terms of how that can be done differently and how you do teach differently to the average person. We're going to talk about cycle syncing, which I'm super excited to talk about. Um, So, for all the women, you're going to love that part. And I th- there's going to be more, so <laughs> let's start at the start. Tell us a bit about your life story, and then how martial arts has impacted you along the way.
1: Oh, okay, uh, yeah. So three sounds a bit crazy, uh, but so I lived in a really small town in Victoria, and there was you know, there was no sport or anything other than cricket or tennis. You know, it's in the eighties, um, and uh, one of the young people in the town had started to do karate. Like sort of in the next town, and so they came in to do a little demo at the school. And from what I, from my memory is like the whole town is there watching this demo because it was so exciting, you know. Uh, and I decided straight away that I wanted to do it. So I think I I was like do, watching the classes and things when I was three, and then when I look back at the paperwork, the first membership card that I can find is just after I've turned four, like days after I've turned four. So it's somewhere in there anyway. Um, and then as I grew up that was still the only sport that was available so that's just what I always did but in the first sort of few months um my dad came started coming along to the classes and he's a bit mouthy and he was sort of standing down the back saying oh you know this is whatever who are these dudes you know I could do that and um the Shehan lesanos just turned around to him and said oh yeah can you all right jump in uh and I think he got his served to him that day but he became a teacher in the end (laughs) so he you know he trained hard as well and and he ended up being running the dojo in our town for until I was about 12 um and then we had family separation he moved away and a couple of years later I took up taekwondo because that came to town so I've always just kind of done the thing that was there in front of me because that was the only option and um yeah it's become part of just what I do and who I am without kind of realising. Like, because you know, when you, when you do that at such a young age, you don't realise that, one, no one else lives like this. <laughs> and two, like it just takes up all the time, especially with my dad teaching. Like every weekend was tournaments and gradings and training camps. And so it's just what I've always done.
0: Let's look chronologically at the impact of martial arts on you then and stay with while you're a child. Looking back, You were mentioning to me that you've found some insights, or you think you've noticed that it had a huge impact on the way that you were able to have an outlet for having ADHD. I think I'm phrasing that correctly, but if I'm not, sorry to anyone if that is wrong. But let's speak to that. Can you talk more about that?
1: Yeah, I think I was saying to you that I just, like, I reflect often around some of the things that just would have been a part of my life from doing karate for so long. Um, and in particular, I think about the movement aspect, obviously, um, and and the, the physiological ability to move things through my body. Of course, I couldn't have named it like that as a kid, um, but I think I was saying to you, like I, I grew up around all the kids that ended up being um, diagnosed ADHD, and everyone was on Ritalin, and that was sort of the era where that was all happening. And 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 I don't see myself very differently to all those people that I grew up in, or grew up with, except that. I sort of never fell into a crack of diagnosis and getting in trouble. And, and I just feel like, you know, maybe also because I like reading and writing so I can, I can put a lot of my attention into the things that you might get picked up through school. But the other aspect of it is that as I was moving all the time in my life, I reckon a lot of, a lot of the tension that would build up in someone who doesn't have that outlet just kind of, you know, fed away from me. And so I I feel like I am a person who just kind of slipped under the radar around that and I look at my behaviours now and the way I do things and I'm sure that I would probably still fall into that bracket but I've just, I was able to find enough interests and intention in what I was already doing that it hasn't been a problem like it is for other people. I would say problem in in quotation marks because I, you know, I mean I, in my practice I work with a lot of people with ADHD and I think they're the coolest of all the people so I don't think it's a problem <laughs> you know? but it's just that um getting under the radar of being noticed as though it could be yeah
0: yeah I have to agree I'm I don't think he's ever been diagnosed but I'm certain that my boyfriend has ADHD and it almost gives him a, like a concentrating superpower in some ways where once he's fixated on something. He doesn't even notice if someone else is watching him do the thing he's so absorbed into it like he gets into flow states so easily, and I'm always astounded by that. I'm just watching him being like "Wow how how are you not you're not getting distracted? I was just sitting there watching you. didn't you feel my eyes looking at you and he's like no i was, i'm 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 concentrating on me go away <laughs> okay, sorry <laughs> so i always I always thought. He just had super concentration power. But I think that, that that is what it is, which, you know, we've all got different strengths. It's awesome. And I think that
1: flow is the thing. I, I remember so distinctly like being a kid and doing kata and just being like so in love with the feeling that I had doing it and then I could just do it for hours and hours, you know, like the perfecting of the form down to the, the tiniest, minutest bits was so fascinating and exhilarating and I like I remember that even being little and thinking like obviously not having the same words again but just having that awareness of like I'm sure other people don't get into this in the same way but I really love it
0: (laughs) yeah I I loved Carter too what about when you got a bit older so I know you took a bit of a break from martial arts is that where we are in the timeline now so you did taekwondo was it then that you took a break and then came back or
1: yeah, I did taekwondo until I was eighteen, and I moved well pro- till I was nineteen. But I moved in that time, moved away from where I'd grown up, where I'd sort of been in that culture, mm-hmm. and then came out to Canberra for uni. And I tried pretty much, like honestly, every martial arts that was in existence in Canberra at the time. I tried I went to every different school, um, you know, kung fu, a screamer, like aikido, just all different stuff, just trying to. I was very conscious that I was trying to find the culture, but I also just wanted to train something. I didn't care if it was something different and new, but I just wanted to be, you know, all those things we just talked about, like being in that flow of my body. I just couldn't find it. like And, and you know, listening to a lot of the topics that you've had on the show is like, yeah, I, I understand all that. I remember that, like being this 18-year-old girl in a new city and just walking into dojos full of men that were all look like big, scary bikers, which was exactly the kind of men that I'd grown up with but they were different men that I didn't know, you know. And, um, and yet very rarely women and just not just not being able to find it. So eventually I just stopped and just went on with uni life and then I had kids and um, after I had my kids, I started uh, realising that I need to do something, so I started doing like the gym thing and the CrossFit thing and I'd never done gyms before, so that was all a bit new and exciting and um, the, the gym that I went to CrossFit in was also a judo gym and an MMA gym so that kind of brought me back into like, oh, that's right. I remember who I am. <laughs> you know? I remember what I love. Um, and then from there, I did a little bit of training with them. Uh, but then we moved out of Canberra into, we live about an hour and a half away from Canberra in the country again. So I came out here and there was, again, no sports, nothing other than tennis and squash and you know those kind of team ball sports. Um, and so I just started training natural movement and, and got certified in that and, started teaching and then someone asked me to teach some self-defense and from there suddenly I had a martial arts school and that's where I am now. (laughs) It just kind of all came together.
0: What is natural movement?
1: I think of natural movement as the movements that humans have done since the beginning of time that we do across all cultures um, and that don't need a team, don't need a particular piece of equipment, but that we would have to do if we wanted to survive in a natural environment. So that could be climbing, jumping, crawling, rolling. You know, if I want to survive in a natural environment, firstly, I've got to be able to get up off the ground. <laughs> I've got to be able to walk, like walking is a natural movement. I might have to run. I might have to get away from something. Uh, but all those kind of those in the middle movements as well, you know, the geometry of being able to bend down or kneel down or squat or things like that. So it sounds really fancy, natural movement,
0: but it really just means the way humans are meant to move. <laughs> yeah. A lot of those things is like people are like, oh, is there not more than that? Is there not more to it than that? A lot of the things related to health that we're probably going to talk about today are very simple and almost yeah. natural. Um, yeah. Is there anything extra about or different about the motivation to train now compared to when you were younger or is it the same?
1: No, that's a really good question. I think it's very different for me. Um, I mean, I started getting into the natural movement specifically because I wanted my kids to be like moving more and moving well. So that that was one motivation. I tried to get them into martial arts. I took them to a martial arts school. They did judo for a little while. They were just so not into it. And and I think a big part of it was probably what we'll talk about later around that culture of of the dojos that we visited. Um, they, it just was it didn't it didn't sell itself to them. They were used to being in an environment where all the adults were really supportive and they had lots of choice and they were informed in what they were doing. So martial arts didn't work for them at the time. So I think I started doing natural movement for that reason. And then in terms of what I train now, like, cause they're kind of all, you know, they're teenagers, they're getting older. They've got their own movement practices. Um, you know, they've, they've found their embodiment, which is, was all I really wanted for them. So now it's me <laughs> and it's just about staying strong. Like, you know, I don't want to be an old person that can't get up off the ground. Like I don't want to be a young person that can't get off the ground. You know, <laughs> That's That's where it always comes back to like, like, for example, I might be going, you know, we've got some paddocks and I might, whenever I go across the paddock, I'll duck under the lowest uh, wire and the kids will say, oh my
0: God, mom, you make
1: everything so hard. And I just say, well, if I can't do it now, I'm not going to be able to do it in another 10 years. So I'll just keep doing it now. You know, little things like that. That's why I train.
0: Yeah, I love that. And having worked in the physio clinic for four or five years, I think, in the end, I've seen a lot of people who didn't realize that that was a priority until it was not too late because its I don't think it is ever too late. Certainly, we've got lots of research backing that up with strength training, for example, but um, it's it's harder. Once you've lost it, you've got to get it back. So maintaining it like you're doing now is a very great insight to have had already in your life.
1: Yeah. And that, I mean, that's something I can speak to because in amongst all of that story, I was very, very sick Mm -hmm. um, and I had like a viral chronic fatigue for seven years and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's a whole different story that people can look up if they want. But through that, I got weak. Like I got unable to move. I got a sore back. I had all these aches and pains. And so I couldn't have just walked into a dojo and started training at the ability that I can now, and I'm certainly still not at the ability that I was when I was 18, and I probably never will be, but the I, I needed the time to just rebuild myself through the natural movement practices. But in hindsight, if I'd known what I know now, I would never have stopped moving. I would never have stopped squatting and ducking under paddocks and things because even if I'd still been sick, it wouldn't have been as difficult to get back to the level of strength and, you know,
0: fitness and all that stuff that I've got now. Yeah. So let's talk about Motion Ninja Academy, because I think it's such a cool marriage of experiences that you've had to lead towards starting that dojo compared to what we see as one of the common pathways to being a teacher in martial arts, which is often starts martial arts, gets to a high level of proficiency, often competing and fighting, high level of success in competition. And then as you start to wane off of that, you look to what's the next step in your career. And that's often logically teaching and not saying that it doesn't happen. There are a lot of fantastic coaches out there that really look into how to be better coaches, but that's not always the case. And sometimes it's just, this is what worked for me. And I'm used to this hierarchy. I'm telling you this, and therefore you're going to do this. And, you know, it's it's not considering how do I be a better teacher and having that kind of mindset, just like these people had when they were asking the question, how do I become a more effective fighter? So you've had the influence of working as a counselor. So, of course, we can speak to that in a bit. I think we're gonna circle back around to that, but that in that influence, then. Being a martial artist in through a family and having your own kids as well, and seeing you know what worked and didn't work for them. What are the other influence that you draw upon in terms of creating this style of teaching this hybrid martial art, this mixed martial art that's standing?
1: <laughs> yeah, standing mixed martial art. We're we gonna get we're we gonna get to that. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. I think. Um, oh, how do I answer that, Georgia? There, as I started to like fall, as the things started to fall into place, where I was teaching, you know, first doing a self defense class for teenagers, and then also running adult movement, and just watching what was happening with the adults that were coming in, then starting to work with the littler kids, and and just really reflecting on how it was done before to how it's done, how I thought it could be done now. Um, I was very aware that there's no way that we can teach in the way that I was taught in the 80s. Like, you know, when I bring my kids down to the river, I'm not picking them up and physically throwing them into the river if they don't want to go. But that happened to me in the ocean when I was like six, you know, (laughs) so that shit's not going to fly anymore in this culture. And I wouldn't want to do that. Like, you know, for me, it's all because I do work as a counsellor, I really rate like relational trust and rapport with people, and so you know, I can bring in ten kids that are all off the charts, and they can't focus, and they're all yelling, and someone bumps someone, and then they think it's the end of the world, and they want to punch on in the middle of class, and and like I can come down on them, and I can scream at them, and tell them that that's the wrong thing, and I can give them all push-ups, and they won't do them properly anyway, and you know they'll just come back and do the same thing in five minutes, or I can find a different way to build rapport with them and really help them understand what's going on for them specifically and physiologically so that's kind of what I just set out to do because I knew that giving people push-ups doesn't work like you everyone knows how kids do push-ups what's the point (laughs) (laughs) so one of the first things I did was develop what I call a spear jump and it's a just a different movement that involves the whole body and there's a jump in there and there's a bend and um just to just to straight up change the way that we do this like now you're going to do this exercise. Like I wanted to take the, the meanness out of push-ups because I think even it's not even just in martial arts, you know, footballers, everyone gets told like go and do push-ups as some sort of punishment. So I wanted to remove punishment completely for adults and kids um, and then just trying to work out well what's going on in for these people you know what what is informing what's going on for each of these individuals and with some of my adults it might be trauma but with some of my kids it might just be anxiety or it might be that they've never been given in a situation where they have informed choice so what if i just speak to them like a regular human and i give them some choices you want to do spear jumps or do you want to just sit out for a while choice like either way let's just see what happens for you you know and it's just been a like it's all an experiment I, you know and every time I think I know what works then I get some other new person in that totally turns it all upside down I'm gonna think about it again but <laughs> the overall is just like how do I make it an informed choice for them rather than me like you said oh this worked for me so therefore that's how we do it because the world's different it's just and it was different then actually it was different in the 80s it wasn't the right thing to be doing then either but now I get to make those choices myself like I get to make the decisions because I'm the
0: boss lady <laughs> Yeah, tell us about the school for children. What does a class look like? What are the things they're doing?
1: All right. So the classes are pretty much the same across the board, teach uh, children or adults.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: One of the very first things is different, probably than most other dojos, is that we circle round instead of standing in lines. So the classes can't be too big. We have to all be able to circle around. So we go try to keep it maximum ten, but some of those are blowing out at the moment. Circle round so that there's equality and everyone can see each other and you know, I can see everyone <laughs> because when you're holding that space, um, you know, it, it helps to be able to see what's going on for each person, not what's not what everyone's doing but what's going on for them, you know, like is that kid unable to make eye contact at the moment or, um, you know, is that lady like sort of looking like she's getting, her kicks are getting not as strong or, or they're getting really strong all of a sudden or so just so that I can see what's going on in the class. I think mm. I really like that. Um also we train outside. So I always have my little chalk, uh like spray chalk can and I just draw up a dojo. We've got a little uh, like a fitness playground that's got some monkey bars and some little bits and pieces. So that's how we bring in the natural movement elements as well as the martial arts. So I guess in a in a traditional martial arts, you know, you're coming in, you're doing your warm-up, you're doing a heap of techniques, and then you spar at the end. That's kind of you know the basic framework. Whereas we are we're coming in, we're doing a bit of groundwork to warm up. Uh, we might play a game, particularly with the kids. We play a lot of games. Uh, and then we might do um, some techniques that are more the natural movement side, so the jumping or the crawling. I really like crawling. I like crawling because it works the left and right side of the brain together. Um, and it's it's something that kids, even if they don't do it well, they, they feel confident in it, yeah, whereas if I ask them to do punches and kicks, they might not be confident straight away. Um, so we'll usually do an obstacle course then we'll do some technique we might bring our martial arts technique into the obstacle course and then I'm just getting to the point where I've got a few kids that are ready to start sparring so we we do a little bit of sparring at the end for the the more advanced kids but um, so I guess it just it looks different in the sense that we're probably doing different moves than what you'd see in most other gyms and then we're doing some of the things that you would always see.
0: You spoke about looking out for anxiety in kids rather than looking out for trauma can you speak to that well
1: <laughs> I think they are kind of the same thing this mm-hmm. is like that's probably a controversial thing to say so all of my work whether it's in counseling or coaching is you know looking through a filter of the polyvagal theory I'm not
0: sure if you've talked about that on the podcast as such give us an explanation now because people might have missed the episodes but we have touched on it
1: okay so i would usually explain that as um, polyvagal theory just tells us that there's many branches in our nervous system that control whether we feel unsafe or safe and it's an alarm signal that happens before our brain can come on board so if i'm in an invi- and it and it the other part probably that's important to understand is that it that that signaling system looks for cues from inside of us outside of us and between us so by between us i mean between you and i if we're in relationship in that moment So if I'm in the dojo, you know, kind of round circle situation, and something in the environment feels a bit threatening to me, that might trigger my nervous system to go into what we know as fight or flight, um, or maybe even freeze, right, a shutdown response, depending on how anxious I am. So whether I have trauma or I don't, and, you know, that's a whole other conversation of what is trauma, But regardless, I can still have the same sort of responses in my nervous system to anxiety as I would if there was a traumatic experience that was making that happen or that was still sitting inside my body. So trauma-informed is the new funky term that everyone uses and it's definitely exciting because we're all starting to think about it. But underlying trauma-informed, I just think that it's anxiety-informed and I don't like to focus only on trauma because when you're talking about kids, what am I going to say to a parent? Like, Oh, your kid's nervous system is really triggered right now. He must have some trauma. Like (laughs) that's just, that's very disrespectful and it, it misses the whole point of informed choice. Yeah. So just to say like, okay, I can see there's some anxiety here. There could be any number of reasons. It could be because they had surgery when they were one year old and they're carrying trauma. Or it could just be they had a shitty day at school and the kid that was a bit mean to them is sitting on the other side of the circle right now from them and they're feeling a little distressed in the environment. Either way, I need to respond in the same way, which is to make sure they can feel safe, they're secure and that they have choice.
0: Yeah, I love it. It kind of reminds me of how Sean Desjardins, who we had on the show quite a while ago, his school is Mindful Martial Arts instead of Trauma Informed Martial Arts, and I love that name too. I think it's really, really good. Let's talk about your work as a counsellor and how that's come in. So what do you do? Who do you normally see? What kind of clientele do you work with? Sure. Yeah.
1: Because I live in a small town, I say that I see everyone and I do. (laughs) I have clients from four to 84 at the moment. Uh, But what I really like to see is the anxiety underlying cases. And as it turns out, that's pretty much everyone that comes to counselling <laughs> in one way or another. Um, so it's it's pretty broad. Uh, I don't like, you know, I don't niche down into one particular age group or anything like that uh, because when I'm working with a polyvagal uh, lens, it's the same response to everyone really. You know, it's, everyone's got the same type of nervous system. It's just our experiences that make it shaped and responsive the way it is. But what I do notice, and I think this is what you're trying to get to in the practice, <laughs> is uh, that at, you know when i when I sit down and look at my books, at least eighty percent of the people at any one time have got a a really significant history of domestic and family violence in their story, whether it's current, like whether it's something that's happening in their lives right now, or whether it's you know from their family of origin and it's still the patterns of of and the cycles of, um, losing control and having people control them could still be showing up in their lives uh, and I I reflect on that a lot about you know because I have a lot of training in domestic violence do I just have a bias to seeing that you know when people come in do I hear their story and decide oh that's domestic violence but so I, I'm constantly reflecting on that and constantly checking in with with my notes and with my training and and I I don't think it's a bias I think it's really there I think the problem is that a lot of maybe not the problem, but maybe the reason that other people don't see it is because they don't have the training to see all those little pieces and and to name it in that way, you know. So I I don't think it's just the people I see. I think it's across the board. And I also believe that, so if I say 80 80 to 90% of my people have that history, there's probably that 20 or 10% that maybe we just haven't had enough discussion to find it yet because I think that culturally it's across, it's everywhere, you
0: know. The statistics being before COVID, one in three women having experienced domestic violence and one in three children. Um, and of course, well, not of course, but we expect that that has risen since COVID. That's only the reported numbers as well. So how much higher that really is. And I think there is a disconnect between that, that number does shock some people when they hear it, but some people, they do know it, but then. You almost don't make the connection like the if in a in any given room, how many people have been influenced by that. it almost just feels like a statistic. and you forget that there's so many flow-on effects from that. and if it's one in three at any given time, then the likelihood that you know somebody in a room has experienced at this time, someone at this time, someone who knows someone and therefore has been impacted by it is it's overwhelming to think about. and I think. Yeah, it's it makes me lost for words. Honestly, it's terrible. Yeah, yeah,
1: agreed. I couldn't say it better. And um, the you know, it's not like people come in to see me because they know that I am domestically violence counselling trained and that that's what we're going to talk about. A lot of the time, that's not what they come to. Uh, you know, they might be coming in for grief or they're or they're having issues with their partner, but they're not thinking that it's a domestic violence situation. And, and so I never say to someone, like, oh, do you realise that your partner's doing domestic violence to you? Like, that's certainly not the way to go about it. But as their story starts to unfold and I can I can say to them maybe something, maybe something like, oh, you know, I'm going to read you a couple of principles or a couple of ideas and tell me if that fits your relationship. And so I'll just pull out some of some of the terms around control and manipulation and threat and and not feeling safe in at home and, and they'll say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'll show them the piece of paper and say, you know, that you've just you've just described domestic violence. So let's talk about that. You know, and it's shocking to people because people don't think that they and I say people because it's not always women either. People don't realize and don't like to think that they could be the person who's having violence done to them. Yeah. And I think that speaks to our culture too, that it's so power and domination and control is so insidious in so much of our culture that we can just be be involved with it without even realising and, and noticing how it's affecting us. But once we do, then we get to change it, which is
0: exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I think Whenever I feel overwhelmed and sad about the state of the world, the fact that our nervous system is plastic is kind of the thing that I'm like, oh, yes, <laughs> like there is always hope, you know, and I think I wonder if the reason why, why that is that people don't realise it too is that we're oftentimes holding on to that childhood belief that things are our own fault too. So, you know, that children making themselves the centre of the world because that's how their brain is set up and then thinks, well, you know, I'm bad. That's why this is happening to me or whatever it might be. And that really most of the time we it's very unlikely that you're going to have super healthy attachments and grow up with great ideas about yourself that you move past that to having a more broad lens, we keep ourselves like children at the centre of the world and make things our own fault. And therefore, if violence is being done to me, it's because I'm not strong enough, brave enough, you know, good enough, whatever the, the blame that we put onto ourselves might be as a society.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely something I hear. And that's the hardest thing. And that's a hard thing for people to get past, like, you know, I think the statistics of of a woman leaving a domestic violence situation is that she'll leave seven times before she actually leaves forever. And that's pretty mind-blowing to people. But the reason is because those relationships are so complex. Like you don't fall in love with someone because they're violent to you. You fall in love with them because of all the good things you see. And they can still be there even when there's control and domination there. So then when you start... Saying all those things like, oh, it must be me, it must be my fault. And it's like we're complicated humans. We're not, it's not black and white ever. But it's I, I agree with you that the plasticity is the exciting thing. And going back to the stuff around the kids in the in the classes, that's what keeps me focused there too. Because like, what can I do for this little, not even always little, but any of those humans in my classes? What can I do for them in this instant that's going to give their nervous system a little a little cue, a little message that the world is actually okay right now? And what will that do on a broader scale to them or for them? Yeah.
0: What are some of the impacts that the program that you're running has had on people? Do you have any examples?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, yeah, I would say just, just that level of more groundedness and you know it's probably not anything different to what other dojos find with with people who stay (laughs) I think I probably have a higher staying rate you know I don't know what the stats on that are but I I reckon that I do because most kids that start don't leave and none of my adults have left so uh, I think that says something in terms of you know what's happening for their nervous systems and then so then what's developed there is is that sense of groundedness and trust I just ran a program over the holidays with a bunch of my more advanced kids. And by advanced, it just means they've graded at least once, you know. Uh, but there was a, there's a group of kids there with all different ages, and some of those young people did not have the ability to be in the same space without getting edgy before. Like they would just have different personalities, and we ran a whole day program where by the end of it, they're all laughing and spraying each other with water, and like, yeah, like beautiful, like just so cool. Um, and you know, all the parents ring and say, "Oh my gosh, they had such a great time! We have to do this again." And and so that's the sort of thing that I see—that just these kids that maybe didn't feel very safe in the world are finding places where they feel safer. That's that's all I want, really. It doesn't I don't care what techniques
0: they do in between that. <laughs> oh, absolutely, I love it. That is so 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 beautiful. I'm just going to quickly look to my notes because I don't want to miss some of the things that I wanted to talk about. Let's go back to Can women. I read-
1: can I read you a message that someone sent me last night before class? Yes, please. I, I haven't asked her if I can, but I'm sure she won't mind. Uh, cool. She says, so, so she does my movement class and it was her first time coming to the adult um, martial arts class, right? So I have a yeah. separate class. It's just movement. Mm-hmm. She says, I'm coming to ninja class today. Heads up, I'm a bit shaky and will likely cry at some point, but so the fuck, what if I do, right? It's 2021, ninjas can be strong and cry and panic and kick ass and have boobs and curves in whatever places they happen to be. And I just was like, oh, yes, yes, they can and yes, you can. And I just, I wanted to share that with you because when I read it, I was like, oh, that's Georgia. Like, that's what she's talking about. Um, And this, this lady, she doesn't know any of that. She hasn't come across you or heard about the podcast or anything. So um it's there right people are people want that like they're feeding off that and um for me with that particular person it just feels like this is why I'm doing it I've been able to provide a space that she can step into that and you know if she's my one new person of the year it doesn't even matter because that one person is going to get so much out of it
0: yeah exactly that is the whole reason why we do it right mm. sorry what i if, cut you off ahead, no you're sorry. right I mean that kind of leads in well What? What about women's circles? So that's something that you mentioned. Can you explain this concept of women needing a circle? And I'm going to let you speak to that because I'm going to butcher it. Okay.
1: <laughs> so uh, women's circles, I guess, is a movement that's been around, well, forever really. Women have been meeting in circles, in spaces that are exclusive to women, probably since the beginning of human time. Uh, and it's it's the work that I've done for the last sort of 15, 20 years in amongst all of like before I was doing the martial arts again I've always been doing this and for me it's always been providing a space for women to meet where they can say anything that comes up whether it's anger whether it's um you know carrying shame it's it's a space where the things that we don't talk about in real in everyday life get to be said you know and so we hold it very confidentially um we usually make the space really beautiful. So it feels really welcoming, you know, going back to that nervous system thing of finding cues outside of ourselves and inside of ourselves and between us. So we, we develop that space in a, in a sacred way, you know, we call it sacred space so that a person entering the space feels like it's a safe place to be and that they can speak. Um, and then hopefully it's held by a facilitator that's able to continue that feeling uh, and that sense of informed choice um you know authenticity integrity and we just depending on what the theme is we it might just develop from there but that's um that's something where I've just heard the most heartbreaking and the most uplifting and the most inspiring stories um, and you never know what you're going to get which I think is probably why I've been addicted to it for so long (laughs) as a facilitator because that there's always something that ev- and, and when one woman speaks in a circle everyone gets something from it you know it's like if I share my vulnerability probably you have a bit of that vulnerability too and maybe you never got to speak about it but hearing me speak about it allows you to know that you're not alone and so then maybe you speak about it or maybe you don't but it, there's a there's a camaraderie and a, a sisterhood right <laughs> it's probably a much better word than camaraderie <laughs> um, and that that then uplifts women. It gives them confidence. It gives them empowerment. And, and I always have said that we don't know what we do in that circle, how that ripples out to everywhere else that that woman goes from then on. You know, My mentor used to say like, we're like spot fires. A, a women's circle is a spot fire. And then after that breaks apart, you know, all those little spots of fire go out everywhere and they light up other places. And we eventually get this whole I know that's not the best image for us a year on, but we get this whole glowing beauty of of women empowered, yeah.
0: How does that relate then into martial arts? So do you have women's circles within the school or women's only classes or what do you do?
1: Yeah, I haven't had to specify that they're women's classes My movement class in the mornings is all just women and we've never had any men show up. So we treat that as women's circle. And some of the things I do in my class is uh, all of my classes, we have sort of in our warm-up phase, we'll be sharing about either how our day was or what's bothering us or you know, just those kind of general things. But it's held. It's not just people chatting for the sake of chatting. And then at the end of the class, we come back together in our circle and we'll say, look to the person next to us and tell them something good that they've done today. And it could be, you know, oh my gosh, like particularly with the women's class, I can't believe that you did all those squats while carrying the three-month-old baby who was crying, you know. So we're very open to having kids at all the classes. Um, or for the the little kids, it's, you know, oh, you did so well when you jumped over that hurdle that was really high, you know. So they're they're speaking to each other, but then they also say something that they've done well and something that they're intending to work on. And that might not even be something in class, it might be you know i want to get in my garden every day or whatever but it just um it it brings that community together even though we're just a group of people training together there's a there's a community community and an intentionality there and one of the things that in that women's class they say a lot is that they feel that inclusion very much like it doesn't matter what shape their body is like how fit they are they they instantly feel included because we're all purposely making eye contact and you know, we're scaling and all those sorts of obvious things that we need to do for people who are moving. But there's just, there's no judgment in that space because I don't leave room for it. I don't allow it. It just doesn't exist.
0: I love the idea of what did somebody else do well. One of the things we do at the end of all of my classes is we go around and say, you know, what went well, what we we're proud of, what was just something good from today. And um, and it, it's funny, some women are like, you know, this is the hardest part of class for me is trying to tell you something that I did well. Like they, they really struggle, but I think it's really important. And just because I note it down and when I look at how their ch- answers change as they progress through the program, it's really quite beautiful. But I love the idea of what did somebody else do well. So for any of my clients that are listening, we might try that. And, um, I don't know if you guys do this. <laughs> I'm trying to make it a really big thing. But um, in Legally Blonde 2, you know, she has the snap cup. I don't know if you've seen it, but they have a they have this cup and everyone has to write a compliment in it and everyone, you put it in and she pulls them out and reads out the compliments, which is pretty much just like the same thing that we're doing at the end of class. But after everyone says the nice thing, there was always this kind of awkward pause of everyone being like, "Ah, oh, that's awesome. Good job. And it kind of felt a bit clunky. So yeah. I decided I was like, we're going to do snaps. You know, like clip your fingers and be like, ah, snaps for Georgia. <laughs> Hi. So anyway, yeah. so to my clients, to the snaps, we're definitely gonna trial adding um what did somebody else or what did you notice somebody else do well? And we'll see how it goes if you like it. That's um great. So, what else do we need to be mindful of for women? I'm alluding to because I'm so excited to get into this topic. Women's cycles are now known as the sixth vital sign, listed by the World Health Association. This super important. What can we learn about ourselves from our bleeds?
1: Everything. <laughs> uh, firstly, I mean from a from a from a training perspective, we can just learn that there is no, there's nothing in nature that goes 100%, 100% of the time. You know, there is, there's an up cycle and there's a rest cycle. And that has been missing in women's sport forever. Uh, and we, we have the opportunity as leaders, like as, as women who are teaching women, to really make sure that that's remembered and addressed. Uh, so, for example, in my classes, I, I always know where everyone's at. All the women, where they're at in their cycle. Uh, and if this week we had a lady come up, she she arrived late. She was kind of tired. She's kind of all over the place. Um, and I said, "Are you okay?" And she said, "Oh, it's the first day of bleeding. I nearly didn't come." And so I just scaled for her. Right? She didn't do anything like the rest of the class, but she could still be involved and she was still included. But you know, where everyone else was doing a squat she was using a chair and she was slowly putting her hands down and she was just resting herself back and exposing her belly and giving her, her, her womb a bit of a rub. And then she was kind of standing back up. So it sounds like, doesn't sound very productive, but you know what? It doesn't have to be productive then because that's a rest cycle. Your body is bleeding. It's getting rid of everything it doesn't need. There is, there's no space for us to try to build on top of that. It's, we, The best thing we can do is support it to do what it's trying to do, which is to process everything out that doesn't need to be there. Take a little bit of regenerative time because then when we do that in another week, we'll be like so strong and so ready to go. But if we don't take that rest, then it's like always pushing shit up a hill, right? There's just no way to keep going because you just drained all the time.
0: Does that answer your question? I went on a it, bit of a tangent. <laughs> no, it answers part of my question. I want to dig right into this. So, if someone's looking at their cycle, how do you map your training around that? So, while you're bleeding, take it more easy, and then the rest of the time is all go, go, go. Or is there more nuance to it than that? Okay. So
1: let's let's. It's hard without having any visuals, but we'll just try to get everyone to think about a map of a circle. So you've got Mm -hmm. a circle in front of you. At the top of the circle is like a compass. It's north. Mm -hmm. So therefore, at the bottom is south. We've got east and west. I'm going to speak from a southern hemisphere perspective. So anyone that's listening in America, just have to flip it. Message me and I'll explain it to you in your your language. But obviously, I teach Australian people, and so that's how I do it. so on that circle we've got this we've got this compass directions we've got this map and we know that in the world uh in the southern hemisphere the sun rises in the east yeah and then it comes up through the day it expands and, and gets most intense when it's at the north of us so it's above us if we go on that sort of you know, way of thinking about a map and then of course it comes down to the west and down in the south part like that bottom half of the circle it's dark there's no sun right that's that's the time where there is the space where there's no sun at all. So that if you just just imagine that in your mind, where you've got your circle and the sun start the, the light starts to brighten on the right hand side on the east, all the way across the top and across to the left hand side is all bright. But underneath that, the other half is dark.
0: Does that make sense,
1: Georgia?
0: I'm fine. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm also I'm so picturing. Now- so yeah. me, If I look like I'm wandering off, it's because it's it's un. Um, I'm there.
1: <laughs> I just want to check that you are there. Um, so now we, if we think that right, that's just that's how the sun goes every single day, and nature reflects that that cycle in everything that it does. So the moon has the same sort of cycle where it it's dark at one point and then it's really bright at the other point. We could map that on this same same thing. So right at the bottom where the south is and where it's dark is a dark moon, and then if we go up towards the east. We've got a, a quarter of a moon, which looks like a half. It's a bit weird languaging. And then at the top, we've got the full moon. Yeah, So that's the brightest phase. So again, we've got this bright half and a dark half underneath. A moon cycle goes for about 28 days. And so does overall, most of the time, broadly speaking, a women's menstru- menstrual cycle goes about 28 days. Obviously, we all move in and out of that a bit. But just as a teaching device, we're going to say that it's a 28-day cycle. So if we were to use that same map, we would reflect that that, let's go up to the top, excuse me, at the top where it's very bright and intense, that would be the place of ovulation. Yeah, so think about in your womb, there's an egg getting ready, there's all this uh, delicious nourishing growth ready to hold that egg when it implants because it will get fertilized and a little baby can grow there. That's happening to us every single month, right? Every 28 days that happens. And that's at the top because that's peak energy. It's like it's the fruit of our womb. Just We could map this same sort of map and we could put a, a plant on there where the seed starts to grow, it sprouts, it has a fruit at the top, and then it decays and it dies off. All its leaves fall down, the fruit falls down, and then it has a, a dormant period at the bottom of the map. So we'll get our, our ovulation at the top. And then same, if the egg isn't implanted and if, if there's no fertilisation that happens there, then all of that nourishing goodness that grew in your uterus just to hold this possible baby has to get them out of your body and get stripped away. So your body goes through the process of letting it all go. Um, you know, your size changes, all that stuff that we call bloating. Like it's actually amazing nourishment that's going on inside of us. And so the that western side of our map, things are starting to strip away, break away, um, and and our body's going through like this huge regenerative. Kind of process to get rid of all of that um, nourishing, beautiful stuff that was holding the egg. And then the bleeding happens. So that's at the bottom of the map. The bleeding happens where a body doesn't want to do anything. It just did all this amazing work and it's time for a bit of rest. Yeah. As soon as it's finished the bleed, as soon as all of those bits of beautiful, nourishing stuff are gone, then it starts to prepare for the next cycle. And we get this increase of energy. We feel like inspired and ready to go. We feel stronger. Um, more more motivated and we work our way up to that ovulation phase again so to answer your question about how do we map our training on that it's the exact same thing when there's that dormant period we want to go slow we want to go easy we might want to do we might want to just focus on technique or uh, you know do a lot more mobility work things that are going to be regenerative for our body but then as we start to hit those the, the first, Say the first half a week after our bleed, we're gonna have such a surge of energy. And all that energy will go on for you know another two weeks. And that's when we go hard. Uh, you know, we can build so much more muscle, all of those things that is is kind of what Western martial arts has become, yeah. The go, 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 strong, strong, strong. That's where that phase is. So. but then there has to come a time where we'll let go a bit of that and we get to sort of reflect, you know, so we can reflect back and and look at all the things we've just done, how useful they were, what do I want to do in my next part of my cycle? That, that um, preparing to bleed and bleed phase is a perfect time to do that. So we can, if we, if we map our training alongside our actual bleeding cycle, then we'll actually be a hell of a lot more productive and like strength will build faster Uh, Focus will be so much easier, and you just won't be as fucking tired as you usually are when you're training.
0: Yeah, it's amazing to me because I have gone through a crazy journey related to my cycle, starting with being on the pill and the influence of that, and then losing my period because I was underweight for many years fighting, and then it coming back because I wanted to bring it back. I recognized that there was something incredibly significant missing from my life and then now working through getting everything into balance again and the more I started asking the questions for me the more I started noticing with my female clients that the times when they would have just like unexplained inability to hit the lifts that they were hitting before and things like that and getting really hard on themselves and being, you know, I just don't know what's wrong. I don't know why I can't hit this today. And at first I would look and be, you know, thinking, well, it must be some kind of training variable that I had like not programmed in enough rest or maybe I'm not programmed, you know, we increased the weight too quickly or something. And then once I started asking those questions without fail, every single time they would they would ask, you know, well, they would say, oh, I just don't know why. I just don't feel right. And I, I would say, you got your period. And every single time, yes, that nobody would put two and two together to be like, maybe that might be the reason why I can't push myself 100% right now. And there's so much shame that comes with that too. There's so much, you know, I'm losing a week and like I'm slipping backwards and even from a programming perspective um, for exercise science nerds out there, you know, there's there's versions of programming where we would look at Starting with this much load, oh, I'm using my hands we're on a podcast, starting with a moderate load, increasing the load the next week, increasing the load to above maximum the next week. That's called functional overreaching, and then having a deload week the following week. Yeah. <laughs> imagine yeah. very yeah. well suited if anyone actually <laughs> if anyone actually followed it, but yeah, I think it's really, really cool to start thinking about that and to start looking at it like a like a good thing, like a blessing, right um what do you have you looked much into some of the benefits that you have within your body while you're you know not just the fact that we go through this cycle but in each of the different phases some of the like superpowers that women might get Mm,
1: that's a good question um well one thing i'll say just kind of referring back to what you were saying at the, at the kind of middle of week three is when we say like everything that's not working shows up yeah and mm-hmm. that's usually that thing that they call pms where like everything's too hard i hate my husband my kids never get ready for t- school on time like just the whole world is ending right and and i think that's a superpower to realize like when that's going on oh hang on like you said are you do you have your period or is it coming and then being able to say okay so I'm getting this very clear message from the world around me that shit's not right, and now I've got the phase where I can deal with that. I can reflect on what has worked, what hasn't. I can plan to change, you know. So for me, like, the superpower overall of the whole cycle is um, that plasticity, the ability to keep checking in and being able to shift and change based on your dreams and your intentions. That darker phase is the place where we put the seeds in. So we we can... we can be with ourselves and dream it. So it doesn't matter whether you are a mum that's just doing a bit of training because you want to stay healthy or you're a professional fighter, you can still use the same rhythm to say, okay, well, this is the time where I'm planning and, and like deloading, all all those things are built in there. So there's probably super, superpowers, you know, in each of those phases, but overall, it's just the, the tuning in and being in flow with what's going on for you. If, if pe- some people will have a cycle where they bleed at the same time as the dark moon, so that becomes really easy for us to follow our own tracking and our own flow because we'll have this matching cycle like I was explaining before. But a lot of women, and I, I find a lot of hard-hitting, go-getting women bleed on the full moon. So we will ha- we'll have the world around us will be reflecting one sort of map and one well, one cycle, one pattern and our own internal structure will be flipped. So when, when everything else is saying, go, 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 our body says, hang on, stop. Yeah. And so that just, I think that's a superpower in really owning your own, like your own everything, like who I'm going to be when I train, um, you know, what, what that's going to look like, what my, my aims and targets are going to be that I'm not, um, like I'm not directed by anything else. I'm just going to go into myself and and let that be the direction. And that, I mean, that's huge for women who are at the upper echelons of training because there might be people around who don't understand what we're talking about right now. And so to be able to show up and say, no, no, I'm, you know, like when I used to train in a CrossFit gym, I would always, whenever I was bleeding, I'd just say, no, I'm bleeding. I'm not doing that. And the look on the men's faces would just be absolute horror because, one, I don't even know what you mean, and, two, you can't say that, you know. It's, it's a big deal for us to start naming that, but we have to. Like we just have to if we want to see women's. Uh, imagine the potential of women in, in athletic and training situations if we were to be using this pattern and this mapping for ourselves.
0: Yeah, I love that so much. You know, it's it's cool that you mentioned like with the flow. So I know from reading the book In the Flow by Alyssa Viddy, who is a great, great author, an incredible advocate for cycle syncing. Um, and she does talk about, you know, some of the physiological impacts of those different phases. So, like you spoke about getting insights from when you're, you know, in quotation marks PMSing and noticing all the bad things that are happening. Well, then when you bleed, the neural activity in your brain across the corpus callosum, which is the rift, the hemisphere or the valley between the left and right hemisphere, is at maximum talking across the, across the valley. So your left and right hemisphere speak to each other much more than they would at any other time and sounds like braggy, but like much more than men's ever do. And it means that you've got a superpower of reflection Similarly, when you're ovulating, you're absolutely magnetic. That's an incredible time to do social things and talk to people where you've got a hormonal boost. When you are just after ovulating, and hopefully, because mine doesn't do this yet, but if you've got a healthy cycle and your progesterone's sp- spikes after you ovulate which is another hormone that people forget oftentimes you're very task oriented and so you can get a lot of shit done during that phase of the cycle whereas when you're in your follicular stage which is just after you bleed just after you bleed is when your brain is really primed for starting to implement all of the things that you thought about, so more planning-oriented, whereas like while you're bleeding is a great time, like you said, for reflection and thinking about what's going on in the world around you, what's going on in your world and, and what could be different. And, yeah, this is a topic I could speak a lot about, but I think even just starting to replace your awareness and tracking when your cycle is and thinking about what you do and don't want to do is really the start of stopping blaming yourself for not being able to follow what we call a circadian rhythm, which is wake up, peak testosterone, testosterone wanes throughout the day and this cycle that we've built our whole industries around, right? The nine to five is really set up for the male hormone and looks the same every single day, apart from the fact that we have weekends, but that doesn't really align with anyone's hormonal cycle, a seven day cycle that I know of. Um so yeah, there it's cool like- to start thinking about.
1: There is some stuff out there about, you know, yeah the rhythm is very exciting to me. That's something that I work a lot with. I actually have a, a diary that I've created where that everything you're just speaking about is kind of built into the diary. So as you go through a moon cycle, you know, when it's a good time to get out in the world, it tells you when it's a time to look into yourself, it tells you all that sort of thing. Um but there is some, you know, obviously there's a lot of stuff around circadian rhythms at the moment, but also that seven-day cycle rhythm is something that people are talking about. I just can't remember what the name for it is right now. If I can find it in my notes, I'll send it to you because I was just like, yes, like this is all, all the pieces are coming together, you know, cyclically. So yeah. that's exciting.
0: Wow. I know that the 28-day the cycle is called an infradian rhythm, but I don't know what a seven-day cycle would be called, but very, very, very cool.
1: Yeah, and when you look at, you know, the 28 days, you split it into four, then mm. you've got the seven. So they're in there. Yeah, it's yeah, it's super cool. If people want to know about rhythm, there's plenty of links that I can provide for people about that and just understanding that. But I think what you said about for women, just start tracking your cycle and start tracking the things that are important to you. Like if if what you eat is important, then track what it is that you want to eat at those times, Not not what it is that you're forcing yourself to eat, but what is it that you want to eat. Or if sleep's important, then track like how tired am I or how well am I not sleeping or sleeping? Because a menstrual cycle is one of many cycles in our body, right? And one of many ways that we can read it. Um, so, but it all comes back to this idea of like being embodied and understanding ourselves. And that's something that women have got to practice a lot more still.
0: Absolutely. So cool. Yeah, definitely. And I think around food, like one of the things that we just spoke about on the last episode with Leah was around. Carbohydrates, right? And there's this big movement towards ketogenic diets and removing whole food groups. And I was all for it. Um, I was strictly keto, well, not strictly keto, but I was very low carb for a very long time and very high energy output. Um, and I believed that ketosis was the future of living a longer life because, you know, you were going to reduce inflammation and improve mitochondrial health and have longer telomeres and, you know, all of the deepest biohacking science. I thought I was all over it and my hormones were completely tanked and the reason is that we need we need carbohydrates and not only do we need carbohydrates women need to have some fat on them so this really really lean body that is starting you know that is quite popular with the strong is strong is the new skinny and like fitspo type thing which is still like a very very lean body body type is maybe not that healthy for your hormones or your cycle. And you can tell if, if you don't have a 28-day cycle, you could be too lean. Like if, And you'll know if, if that is the thing. So it's definitely worth thinking about too, making sure you are giving your body enough food because women do need more calories than I think they think, you know.
1: Yes, yeah. And I would say, I mean, you might not have a 28-day cycle. You might have a 26-day cycle, mm-hmm. but it's the regularity. That we're looking for right yes. uh, so i always want to make sure that women understand it it doesn't matter whether you bleed with the full moon or the dark moon or you have 26 days or even 42 days if you've had 42 days every month for six years it might be okay for you that's probably just right like again it comes down to informed ability to understand ourselves and but um yeah the rhythm is what we're looking for something that has that regular rhythm and we can really we, we can train that within ourselves. Another way to, to work with that is with light as well. So if we don't have a very regular cycle, we might want to start thinking about, well, am I getting light at the right time of the day? Am I getting dark at the right time of the day? And sort of starting to match that. But on a broader scale, am I having bright light during a full moon and less light during a dark moon? Because in an ancestral context, that's how we would have lived, right? There would have been periods of the month where the world was brighter and where the world was darker so there are ways that you can like start to just it's ways to notice for ourselves about what's going on
0: yeah yeah really really cool I hadn't even thought about the impact of light on the cycle certainly I thought about it for sleep but I've never thought about it for cycle I'm definitely going to start looking more into that now and I thought about the idea they call it like moon bathing where you go out and look at the moon every night to try and encourage a cycle to sink towards sort of one way or the other so your body knows what's going on with the moon but I love that it's a really really cool like you said ancestral model way of looking at that um let's talk about some of your work on the board for I am going to forget the name of the charity but the charity work that you're doing around domestic violence talk to us about that okay
1: so the town I live in is called Braidwood mm-hmm. and so the group you're talking about is braidwood says no to violence (laughs) Uh, and that was something that i came into uh when i was doing my counseling training that that local group was sort of sitting there already and they were just trying to work on projects that could address domestic violence in the community it's a small community but yet we're we're very we're close it's a weird situation where we're close enough to services in brought in bigger cities like country cities but at the same time, we can we can access them, but we don't have anything in the town, right? Mm-hmm. So the question was around: could we have our own shelter, or you know, these huge big projects that were um, not very weren't really going to work. Um, but what we sort of have got to over the time is realizing that the best thing we could do for now, in terms of working around violence in the community, is to educate everyone in the community. So we, so I, I sit as the chair of that that committee last year we didn't do a lot because of all the reasons why everyone else didn't do a lot (laughs) but before that we were doing a lot of educational uh, lectures and workshops where we were inviting particular groups in so our first one was around all the businesses in town and we went down the main street and and hand invited like directly invited each sort of owner of the business and and said look we just want to provide information about what it is that you would be how would you know if someone came into your business and they were being impacted by domestic violence and what would you do about it you know because most people care like there's not many people that would just be like oh I don't want to know about that fuck that you know people care um, particularly when you say it's women or children that are being impacted so we did this series of lectures where I would just speak about um, you know, how to recognize domestic violence, um, really getting people to question their bias and some of the mythology, you know, things like boys will be boys um, and that, you know, she's mouthy, so she deserves it, all of that shit. We just got it out of the way and um, really got people to think more broadly about not only what domestic violence impacted people would look like, but how it's affecting the community overall. You know, so one example I like to use is if you're, if the school teacher, Um, of your child is impacted by violence at home and then she comes to school and she's having a difficult day, that impacts another 30 kids and then that impacts another 30 families and, you know, so we can, so just the education was just around helping people understand how important it is that we get on top of domestic violence as a culture and a community Um, And then also, like, how would you respond to someone? So if somebody did come into your business or if your friend did disclose to you that she was in a violent situation, what would you do? Because most people want to just say, oh, you need to leave, get out of there, like, you know, go to the shelter, whatever the options are. But a lot of the time that's, it's not that simple. You know, there's all these safety things to think about. And so educating people about those and, and helping them understand why someone mightn't leave, uh, why they mightn't disclose um and then because obviously none of these people are are practitioners they're just regular people in the community then educating them about how to refer like where would you send someone to you know and and so all that sort of thing so then we provided lists of you know who people could refer to and like community outreach and all that sort of thing so it was an exciting project in the sense that it started out of a need but as we developed it we actually the what we found out about the needs were reflected by the community like we didn't just come in and go right this is what we need to do it was it really was a back and forth kind of thing and lots of workshopping and stuff like that so this year we would like to extend that work Um, but for me it's a it's difficult Georgia because like firstly I work as a counsellor, so I'm sometimes in a small town the situations can be a little close so I have to be careful as sitting on the board as well that you know, like someone might come in and say, oh, so-and-so is, you know, being bashed by their wife or whatever, Holly, you got to do something about it, can you see her? And it's, it's just complexities there. There's always lots and lots of, yeah, aspects to that. Um, uh, and so overall, I think it's important that we exist because if nothing else, we have provided uh, a voice that says that violence isn't okay in the community um, and on a personal level, I really like that I sit in that group of people who says violence isn't okay and then I teach people how to fight because that, that's more complexity that people have to get their head around, you know.
0: Yeah, because I think we've spoken about this before, this like why would you teach someone who's been exposed to so much violence to more violence? But, you know, I think it couldn't be further from the truth. What would you say to that?
1: Oh, I agree entirely There's, you know <laughs> yeah I mean, you, you've spoken to it so well before but the thing for me about teaching people to use their body in a way that they get to create their own boundaries has absolutely nothing to do with violence it might be something that's useful for people who are impacted by violence but it's useful for everyone and it's it and it's not equivalent like it is you know if I can if I can take up the amount of space that is rightfully mine with my body that's nothing to do with violence and that's really all I'm teaching people you know the fighting's one version of that but I mean I, I teach everybody our first move is this crazy ninja move where you know which we would call in karate a palm hill strike right so we're just for anyone who doesn't know what that is, we're reaching our hand forward and pushing with our palm and, and getting our fingers out of the way. And you think about kids' shows and like where there's ninjas and that's the kind of stuff they do, right? They're like, Hoo-yaw! and they're doing these, you know, ridiculously racist and just stupid ideas. But when you get kids into a class and you say, that's the first thing we're going to do, but then you you branch that with like, if somebody tries to fight you, what are you going to do? You're going to tell them, no, you don't want to fight so let's put a no with a pushing sensation with our ninja move, which is a palm hill strike. Suddenly I get to embody the boundary that I make with myself. So if I'm someone who's been impacted by violence, whether that's a child or an adult, I'm suddenly learning that my body can make a space that maybe I didn't even know existed before. It's got nothing to do with doing violence.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's got nothing to do with doing violence because violence is, and I think you spoke to this before with us off air, was violence is doing an action to somebody without consent. That can be anything, any kind of an action, verbal action, emotional action, physical action. And there's always consent in fighting. And as soon as there's not consent, that's a tap, that's tapping out, that's a loss. And nobody's ever hitting anybody past a verbal or physical tap in any kind of combat sports situation. And then again, we're not we're also not talking about what is the perfect way to fight to be able to defend yourself. Going on and on about it on this on this show, there are lots of great reasons to learn self-defense, but don't kid yourself thinking that self-defense is something that you were lacking, and that was the reason why you were assaulted, or the fact that you have learned a couple of things in a self-defense class means that you're going to defend yourself because if a situation arises where you are attacked and you don't defend yourself, what are you going to do? You're going to blame yourself for the fact that, oh, you knew this and you still couldn't defend yourself. Why did you freeze? Well, we just spoke about that. It's a nervous system response. If the stress is big enough, your body will automatically freeze. So yeah, again, to get off the high horse, people probably sick of this. Although if they listen to this show and they consistently keep listening to it, they keep probably being like, yes, we need to talk about this more. They are different things and you know i think the more people that come out and talk about how different that they are the the more that that message gets spread and i'm not saying that people shouldn't learn self-defense so i think self-defense is like a great thing to learn if you find it fun and like you said you learn to set boundaries and you hold space differently and you walk differently in the world but they are different different yeah and um oh i
1: was gonna say something to what you said before um I don't know it's gone now. Must it be important?
0: All good, all good. Um <laughs> so we have spoken about what could be different with kids. Oh, I know. Can oh go go. I, go. go, go. Yes. Um
1: yeah, going back to what we're doing with Braidwood says no to violence is about educating people so they understand that violence is a specific set of behaviors, you know, it's it's threatening and it's controlling and manipulating. And so that then you know they they can they can pull that apart for themselves they can see the difference that um you know it's not just this old idea of oh he hits her so therefore that's domestic violence when you understand that it's about control uh people are if, if you can be educated to um, to see that control takes many forms like you said through voice or through physical threat then people are more likely to see it in the people around them you know so going back to that business person who suddenly sees that, oh, the woman, or who, sorry, I don't want to always say the woman, but the person is not able to pay for the food or, you know, just these little things that you might notice over time where someone is always taking control, and this is the same in elder abuse as well, that the the person who's doing the controlling of the situation could be using violence against that person and holding a threat against them. And like I say, that's got nothing to do with what we do in martial arts. So just for me, like, Violence work is so much also about educating the broader community so that we can all be speaking about the same thing, which is what you're doing and you
0: should not stop talking about it. <laughs> Good, thank you. I always want a pat on the back. <laughs> Let's recap because we've spoken about a lot today. I think um, first to touch on that, Martial arts can be a great output for someone whose brain is wired to get obsessed with things and want movement, right? Another way we could say that is ADHD. Martial arts is going to be a great option if they find that they like it or whatever they like you said, with your kids, whatever their embodied practice is, something that you can get into and move your body is fantastic. So for parents with kids with ADD, that's a great place to start. Um, when we talk about how to structure martial arts classes, There's no right or wrong answer, but it's interesting to think about how you can integrate more choices for people, how you can be more accommodating for where people might need things to be scaled up and down. And that could be dependent on where they are in their cycle. That could be dependent on some of the things that is happening in their personal life or has happened in their past. Um, We can think about how movement practices are so critical to us growing older gracefully and being able to continue doing the things that we want to do and how some primal movements are maybe being forgotten. And so things like crawling and getting down under fences and squatting down to chairs and standing up and things like that are so important to continue to do throughout the lifespan. We've spoken about domestic violence and how prevalent that it is and how commonly it manifests Or people don't realise that it's come up, whether or not they've blocked it out, their brain has protected them from it, or whether they don't want to talk about it. But it is significantly prevalent in our communities. And when someone is feeling really anxious, that might be a root cause of it. And regardless of whether or not it is, it's important to think about the polyvagal theory and some of the different responses that people might have to that and how we can help calm them down. And so for anyone who does think about that, um, something that I... Personally, love is this idea of um, responding to someone who is feeling dysregulated. And that means their nervous system's dysregulated. So they're feeling stressed. You can see some, some form of someone who's not okay is not to do logic and say, Oh, you shouldn't feel upset because logic is to look at their nervous system and bring it back into their, their window of tolerance, which, if you think about the polyvagal theory, call that. I always get confused, dorsal vagal, ventral vagal? Ventral's at the top. Ventral's at the top. Ventral vagal Um, is to get them to look around the room, get them to breathe, get them to feel their feet on the floor, get them to do some sort of a primal movement and then relate to them, you know, empathise with, I do know, totally understandable why you might be feeling this way. And then you can start to talk logic through people, but recognising that nervous system responses are automatic. And so, you know, trying to use logic to say, "Well, oh, you shouldn't feel like that can be less helpful. And I think martial arts, like we've spoken about, can be such a great outlet for showing people how they can take up space, they can embody all these cool movements, they get embodied by making empowered choices, they can see their body as useful for something other than looks, right? Their bodies are amazing and strong. We have spoken about, you know, that there might be some different signs for domestic violence that you might not recognise easily and we'll put links to some of the the um, board's Say No to Violence resources in the show notes here for people to follow on and I feel like we've talked about heaps more than that so as a recap for everyone walking away I think you know martial arts has come a long way since the 80s where you're walking into gyms and you can just tell from listening to this show that there are lots of really great places for women to train and for men to train because for men if you think you're going to have a good time training in a dojo that doesn't look after its women <laughs> maybe maybe rethink right I think even for men look for how the women are treated because if they're not treated well that's a toxic training environment you can just about guarantee it it should be a big red flag for whether or not you want to train you know my gym treats women very very well I think you know and if it didn't I wouldn't be there so there's there's that to think about too it goes kind of both ways is there anything else that I missed in that Summary, I don't feel like it was even that brief because we've gone through quite a lot, that you, you want to share with the kind of people who are listening to this show. You've got so many great insights.
1: That was an excellent synopsis of everything we just talked about. Um, I, think, I feel like you just described my life in, in the paragraph <laughs> or two. Um, um, I think the most important thing to anyone who's listening to this because we're all coming from a similar place is around leadership and mentorship I know we had mentioned we would talk about that. We've kind of gone off topic, but True. The, that that anyone who's listening to this is in a in a position of leadership for other women because you you wouldn't be listening if you weren't. You know, so whether you're actually a teacher or you're just someone in a gym or you're someone who's thinking of stepping into the gym, like all of us can be and do something for a woman that's coming up behind us, whether she's younger or, you know, just whether she's had a different life experience. And I don't want to use the word owe, like it's not that we owe it to each other, but we have the ability and the capability, particularly as women in the Western world, you know, if you're listening from any of the places that you likely are listening to this, you have such potential to create good things in the world. So why not use what you've already got and what you're learning to, to lift other people up and lift other women up? I certainly, if I didn't have those few women in my life growing up that were doing that for me, you know, and taking me along to things or just showing me who they, who they what they could achieve, then who knows? Like there wouldn't be this generation of us now, you know? So I just like to think about we're sort of a generation or two on, what comes down the line after us? You know, what's what's my daughter's age group and the age group after her? What will it look like in the scheme of not just martial arts but all women's sport um, after we've all been talking about this? So get into it, get involved with it and don't be scared because there's more of us than we think, yeah, that are saying these things. That's been a big learning for me listening to your podcast. Like they're out there. I'm not alone.
0: Yes. And even if you want to think about that from a more selfish point of view in terms of why you should put yourself out there to help others. If you think about all your biggest wins in life and all the times where you felt like most proud, most of the time those have been things that have really impacted somebody else. And from a survival point of view, we are wired that way. We can get oxytocin and dopamine, two great feel-good hormones or chemicals, um, when we do things for other people, not just when we do things that benefit us. Yeah, it feels pretty great, but it feels really great when you help other people. And once you start feeling that, like you'll get addicted can almost guarantee. Yes, (laughs) obviously. (laughs) Case in question, Holly. (laughs) All right. I think we're just about going to wrap the podcast there. How do people get in contact with you?
1: um well i mean the the ninja website is motion ninja dot online uh that's you know and i do online classes too so maybe if you've got kids that particularly kids classes that where there's kids that might be a bit anxious um that's certainly an option so you can go and have a look there uh in terms of counseling my kind of broader company is institute for self-crafting and you can find that at dot com uh and yeah i mean i'm sure you'll have links georgia I, I never listen to that part of podcasts when people say that. So I just feel like, are you going to look up my name and you're going to find me because there's no other Baker Bolgevacs in the world except for me. So that's an easy way <laughs> to look it up.
0: Yeah, that is, that is the thing about um, the internet now too. It's not even really that necessary, but I'll put links to yeah, your Instagram, Facebook, all the places where people can find you depending on where they like to connect with people because I think that that is important to be able to offer.
1: I'm probably most active on Instagram. I don't really do Facebook that often. Um, But, yeah, so Instagram, if you want to talk to me or you want to see pretty pictures of where I live, that's the best way to go.
0: If you want to see where those roosters are coming from, that's the way to go. (laughs) All right, thank you so much, Holly. Have an amazing day. Have you thought of something to be grateful for today? What was it? I'm grateful for the amazing women that train with me at the Fight Back Project. I'm grateful for Nari and the beautiful song Shape Me heard at the beginning and end of every episode. And I'm grateful for you for listening to this show and helping martial arts keep saving lives. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. If you'd like to leave me a review to help more people find the show, that's a bonus. You need
2: to know that nobody shapes me. Gotta tell you what my name is, I don't gotta explain it Walk in the room, hear a boom erupting like I'm famous I'm here shedding shells, I'm shameless I fear nothing, no complacence Walk to many tight ropes with no hope, so I became this Poster, they hold over all the heads of trauma holders You don't need to know my history, I move boulders Atlas shrugged, cause I lifted the weight above his shoulders No pretense of defense, move first like chess soldiers This goes deeper than empowerment, cause... When the power in physical meets mental challenge me to keep devouring if I can't change the scenery at least I change the specters. no longer isolated but elevated and selective Darkest places become beautiful spaces this is where rage meets patience <laughs> meets power meets gracious meets we're so glad you came in the feeling is contagious when you the walking impact of intended bad intentions when you the manifest enough collecting all their tensions you the soul and body hold it all and still remember but i'm a work in progress testament to all contenders forgot what it was like to have control over self forgot what it was like to be the one in charge forgot in my reflection i could see all my wealth forgot that with my bare hands i break all these bars barriers and obstacles they can't cage me they can't Chronicle all my experiences and reduce them to appearances when i was truly beaten gave myself clearances to fall down mess up and get myself back up i'm not looking for clovers because i don't believe in luck damn you were badass i heard them say it clearly why thank you very much i know now i'm not weary of what's next for me because i expect to see growth like i was planted watered fed and bloomed to be the positivity and accountability knowing they won't step if i'm the agent of my agency I think I found my voice again, huh? I think I found my voice again, huh? I'm not sorry, I'm not sorry, you're the end where I begin Boundaries, I know them well, take a breath and meditate Who is she? I know her well, now I get to open gates One, two, one, two, I don't need your permission And if you get uncomfortable, then use your intuition To know that I won't stay where respect is ever missing And everything I do, that's me making decisions It's truly underrated, the value of self-worth Forgot that I was rich from the moment of my birth A penny for my thoughts, no really, you can't afford it You cannot buy my my story, rewrite it, hold record it. You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, whole recorded. record it, huh?